0: How do fitness professionals who aren't marketing and technology experts build a profitable business? This podcast uncovers the secrets of fitness leaders who've already found financial freedom, so you can take paid vacations, save for retirement, and work from anywhere in the world. I'm Kenton Boutwell, joined by co-host Nick Clayton, and this is the Fitness Leaders Podcast. How's it going, Nick? Ken, it is great. How about yourself? Doing well, doing well. Excited to get this podcast going today.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm excited. I hear we have a great guest.
0: Yeah, we do. And uh, for those of you who have ever been curious about uh, kettlebell training, injury prevention, or athletic performance, today's guest is an expert with 20-plus years of experience in these fields. He's an athletic trainer who transitioned into the fitness industry. He's currently the director of Strong First, the director of education for Strong First. and He also serves on the advisory board for the functional movement screen. Our guest today is Brett Jones. Welcome to the show, Brett. How's it going?
2: It's fantastic, Kenton. It's uh, wonderful to have the opportunity to be on with you and, and Nick and, uh, and to speak to you and your audience. So thank you for the opportunity.
0: You're welcome. You're welcome. So as I understand it, you are an athletic, athletic trainer and uh, maybe do you want to talk about how you got into fitness?
2: Sure. The uh, long story kept medium of uh, how I how I got here. Let's see. I have a bachelor of science in sports medicine, athletic training, I wrestled in high school, had some injuries, got interested in physical therapy, decided that I was going to go to school for athletic training and then go to PT school. Found out you had to do physics and stuff like that to go to PT school. So I dropped that and went straight with, uh, with the athletic training. And I got a master's in rehabilitative sciences, which is actually drug and alcohol rehab, which is good information on behavior modification and change. And um, actually took my first job down in a the metropolis of Chatham, Virginia, uh, which happens to be Gray Cook's hometown. And while I was working there as an athletic trainer, Gray walks into my training room, says, Hey, my name's Gray Cook, you need any help? And started a friendship with Gray back in 95. And I left that job in 97 and started running a hospital fitness center in Clarion PA during that time. I actually went to the first ever FMS workshop was about 1999. Don't let the baby face fool you a little, little older than, than I might uh, appear. Hopefully nobody's laughing at that at home. During that time at, got interested in kettlebell training, went to the second ever certification that Pavel taught in February of 02. So next year will be 20 years. I've been kettlebell certified with Pavel started teaching with Pavel in April of 03 and since then have uh, got hooked back up with gray. The Secrets of DVD series, which led to the development of the FMS Level Two materials, and a lot of progression within uh, that school of uh, of work as well. So it's been—I I tell people all the time—I have just been incredibly blessed, very fortunate that I was given opportunity, and then pursued and did the work to take advantage of those
0: opportunities. Well, yeah, that's that's awesome, man. That's that's a a lot of information. So I want to kind of back up and where, where. So are you originally from Pennsylvania or Virginia?
2: Originally from Virginia. Roanoke, Virginia.
0: Roanoke. Okay. And then as far as getting into fitness, did you, I guess, did you get in, you mentioned wrestling in high school, but was that kind of your entry point?
2: It was. I, I, my dad actually stopped smoking, gained some weight, started working out when I was a kid and was just a great example of, uh, somebody that really took on their fitness. And then when we, you know, we had the weight set downstairs, we had one of those early DP wall mounted kind of old school pulley systems. I'm I'm going way back. And then we had a a weight set, Olympic weight set and pull up bar into the rafters that we we would use. And so, you know, I was training and and working out uh, to be strong for wrestling and obviously got way off track during college and, and grad school, a couple of periods where I would get in shape a little bit. But then, you know, once I made the switch into running this hospital fitness center, you know, that was really kind of the transition into what would I, I would consider the, the, the fitness industry. Yeah. Really taking the deep dive on um, what, what it meant to be a personal trainer, or strength conditioning coach.
0: Yeah. Well, how was your uh, wrestling
2: career? How did you do it? I, It's, well, it's a, another long story that we'll try to keep short. Pretty good in junior high. Got injured my sophomore year and actually ended up going into the districts and the regional tournaments just by flukes pure flukes our guy got injured i went into districts i got destroyed the but then the last guy on on the list he got injured and i was the alternate so i went into regionals and actually won a match and and then the rest of my high, high school career basically nothing because uh senior year I uh, got mono and I I missed like 80 some days of school and, in my senior year. I mean, I, I had a I had a really bad case of mono. And did you was, get that from kissing a
0: girl or what?
2: <laughs> I, I was not uh, that that was not how I got it. But uh, I have heard those stories. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's awesome. Now, so were you doing Greco Roman or freestyle? What kind of wrestling are we talking about here?
2: So in high school, high school wrestling is called folk style. It's actually, yeah, and it's unique. It's actually not contested anywhere outside of like scholastic um, United States. If you're wrestling other places in the world, you're freestyle or Greco-Roman. Okay.
0: Awesome. Awesome. And then I am just curious when you, what, could you maybe tell us a little bit about what your workouts were like back then when you were training for wrestling?
2: Yeah, I, I've always been good at pull-ups. And so I can remember a time frame where I would start my workout with like 6 sets of 12 behind the neck pull-ups flip around, do a set of 20 to the front and then start into things like bench and, you know, things like that. Very influenced by, uh, education of a bodybuilder and Arnold's encyclopedia bodybuilding. And so I'm not saying that it was effective and I certainly didn't spend enough time on my legs or enough time deadlifting, but I was really good at pull-ups and decent at, at bench. And so it was not what I should have been doing, but I don't know. Good, good base of pull ups, which I think gives a good, good base of strength for a lot of different things.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree. So, but you were following like one of Arnold's programs. It sounds like something. You know, I kind of when I started working out, and I don't know about you, Nick. You know, that was kind of the first thing I saw. Like I would look at magazines. You know, I remember in the grocery store they had a you know aisle there, and not just um, you know weightlifting, but also like martial art. Black Belt, I think, was the name of the magazine. Been around for yeah. a long time.
1: Yeah, that's funny. I think we all we all got that same start. You know, I grew up playing soccer. And it's like, oh, I got to start lifting and, and doing this stuff, and picked up some magazines, got into bodybuilding type workouts, got real big and real slow, and uh, my soccer <laughs> suffered from it. Classic story. Perfect. <laughs>
0: Definitely. It sounds like everybody kind of starts off with those those types of programs. And so kind of moving on out of your high school wrestling career after that, you uh, you went to did you decide at some point in high school that you wanted to pursue um, a career in health and fitness?
2: I was more directed towards physical therapy. Yes. And that's why I went to High Point to uh, to get an athletic training degree. Which you know, this is long before the days of DPT and and some of the more uh, some of the different uh, physical therapy programs that exist now. You simply went to uh, you got your physical therapy degree as part of a master's degree, and you had to get into those schools via having a a bachelor's in in related field. So athletic training certainly checked that box. And then, like I said, I I found out there was like physics and stuff involved, and I'm like, well, I'm not doing that, so. Just went straight athletic training,
1: uh, not to interrupt. I, I can't help but laugh. So I had mono too, horrible, <laughs> knocked yeah. me on my butt, but yeah, kind of the same thing. I went through, you know, I started off in athletic training, was thinking about doing physical therapy, took my first chemistry class and three days <laughs> across the board, only D I've ever gotten in my life. I'm like, I don't, this is just not relating to me.
2: <laughs> it's not in my future. But it's fine. You know, Chem 101 and Bio 101 are how they weed people out of those programs. And they're they're meant to be grinders uh, for that reason. But, you know, it's I, there was a time when I transitioned into running that hospital fitness center, I was based that fitness center was based in a PT clinic. And so we transitioned a lot of people from po- into what we would now call post rehab into this wellness program that I was running. And so I had everything. I had neurological conditions, Parkinson's, strokes. I had wheelchair bound amputees and orthopedic issues. I mean, I had a bunch of stuff coming through the door that was really, really tough. And I didn't know how you worked in the, the fitness world without an athletic training degree. I mean, I was doing, I was continuing rehab and, and doing neurological rehab and, and, and working with folks with really challenging situations. I didn't know how you did the job unless you had the, the sort of uh, experience that I came in with. And that's, that's something that's very unique about the fitness industry is there just, there's a very low bar to entry.
0: Definitely. Well, Brett, so anything you want to say about your athletic training, just your time during school, I am curious what that was like. And I mean, did you make, meet some good people? Did you, what, what was your big takeaway from that? Uh,
2: well, I mean, athletic trainers, and, and this is something I saw from my father and grandfather and, and something that is part of athletic training. You are the first person to show up and you're the last person to leave. Uh, you put in the hours, you do the work. And you just know that you're going to be there, and and that's that's the way life is going to be. I had a um, uh, athletic training student do their collision hours with me when I was at this military academy in, in Virginia, and it's supposed to be several weeks to accumulate your hours. She was done in two weeks. She had she had accumulated all of her collision hours because it was about um, you know I was doing eighty to one hundred hours a week as part of this program, and that's athletic training in a nutshell. So. In addition to the fantastic base of anatomy, physiology, uh, injury, uh, rehabilitation, adjusting exercise, those things that come with you out of, out of an athletic training background, you, you learn to put the hours in, you do the work, and uh, that is a, a huge key to any success, I think.
0: Yeah, and so you're in there, you're doing your athletic training. Did you work with any, I guess, specific athletes or sport teams during this?
2: Yeah. So um, as you progress on up and, and this is back in the days and, and most athletic training people won't. Well, the old the old timers will remember the internship programs where you start accumulating your hours in your freshman year. And so I started working with teams and taping angles and stuff like that in my freshman year. And so by the time I got to my senior year, you know, I was working with uh, the the basketball team and and High Point didn't have a football team or anything like that. So soccer and basketball were kind of your two big sports and I was the athletic trainer for the soccer team and then the baseball team that fall. And then moving into grad school, uh, I worked with Clarion's D1 wrestling program. So I got to be at the NCAA championships uh, in Iowa at Dan Gable's house, so to speak, and had some great experiences there. So a very different take on it. And you know, now with the experience that I have and the things that I've done uh, after that, you know, athletic training tends to be very reactionary. You're waiting for an injury to happen so that you can go deal with it on the field or court and then you pull it off to rehab and and take care of it, tape, brace, et cetera. And so I I think there could be a a lot more proactive approach.
0: Okay, awesome. One last question about the athletic training. So, you know, we talked about, you know, how when you were in high school, you were. Your workouts, basically, magazine Arnold Schwarzenegger. So, did you, are you still working out while you're in school? And and if so, like, did that I guess alter your workouts and the training programs you were doing? You mean once I got into college? Exactly. Once you're hey. in the athletic training program, what are you doing then for your for your workouts?
2: Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I was up and in class by 8 a.m. I would grab a quick, quick lunch at noon and then I'd be in the training room from 1230 or 1 till 5 or 6, quick dinner, back up for more practices or games or whatever was happening that night. And so it was just, I was busy. Um, so I just didn't think senior year, I, I, I you know put some time away. I think I got to a 315 bench, uh, which had always kind of been hanging out there as a goal um, not saying it would have passed in competition or anything, but you know, was uh, a little bit fitter in my senior year. But uh, no, it. it w- I was just really, really busy and consumed by what I was doing. Had a good time frame in grad school where I was actually running. Um, and um, there's several people if if they know me, they just passed out or at least had a, had to take a moment when I said I was running because I certainly don't now. And, um, so I would gotten pretty lean and, and done some running and some, but it was mainly just cardiovascular work. It was running and uh, a lot of time on a step, uh, a stepper and stuff like that. What wasn't anything good. It was just activity.
0: Okay. So after you get done with your, you get your athletic training degree, do you, I, I think you said you went on to pursue your master's. Are you working too during that time period? Did you get a job?
2: So I was a grad assistant athletic trainer. So I was working as an athletic trainer for the school uh, and at the same time that I was getting my, uh, my master's degree.
0: Okay. And what, what made you, I guess, I'm just curious, what made you decide to pursue going, you know, and get to higher education?
2: Um, well, it was an intro. It's actually a more interesting question than, than you realize, because I had actually gotten into UVA's athletic training master's program. And at that time it was the, one of the best, if not the best program for athletic training, uh, masters in in the nation. And I chose not to go. Um, so some, I, people convinced me that getting two degrees in the same thing, wasn't uh, a great, a great idea. Getting a degree in something slightly different would be make me more marketable and whatnot. So I went up to Clarion to get, uh, Degree in rehabilitative sciences, which was interesting information. I, I grew up in an alcoholic household and household with addiction, and, and uh, so you know I had certainly been touched by that in my life. And then you know getting the the degree in it uh, and just having a deeper understanding of of uh, behavior modification and, and addiction has been uh, been interesting. And like I said, it's you know as a as a personal trainer in this world, uh, one of the things we're trying to help people do is modify their behaviors. So, you know, understanding a little bit more about that is is always good info.
0: Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, I really think that is the key to change, you know, a lot of the fitness stuff and people, I guess people don't reach their goals. A lot of times it's very simple. It's really just because of the behaviors, you know, very simple behaviors. Um, and I am gonna say, it sounds like, you know, kind of moving into that degree. I don't know if you want to elaborate on it, but, but was that, I kind of want to know how that differed from your athletic training and then you know, what, you know, what you were doing in there.
2: Oh, it was all focused on addictions counseling. So we were looking at uh, things like alcoholism, um, heroin addiction, things like that. And and understanding some of the strategies and, and things that you do for um, counseling uh, those folks to help try and help them find recovery. And I don't know what the statistics are now. It's been a little while since I've looked, but only about 35% of those with what we would consider alcoholism find recovery the rest of them uh, pass away due to the alcoholism so it's you know it, it's certainly much higher stakes typically than trying to help somebody fit in a half hour workout a few times a week but it's it's an interesting dive down and certified addiction counseling it's it, it varies across different states uh, post getting that master's I would have spent three to four years as um, uh, basically an intern, Doing work as an addictions counselor and getting very little money for it, and I didn't go, you know, in that direction. I never really completed the process to be a, a CAC, but um, certain, you know, the information, the background was good. And one of my professors actually was obsessed with TQM, what, what was called total quality management at that time, uh, which has gone on to live by a few different names. And so we were reading Stephen Covey and looking at. Uh, the TQM uh, sort of uh, uh, research and and information at the time. And I also came out with actually a lot of good information on management and leadership.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And and kind of going back to the behavior thing, a a big thing now that I'm starting to see in in the fitness industry is, you know, you probably noticed both of y'all like health coaching. And I felt like it's, you know, really based on the behavior thing. That's kind of the big focus. Anyway, so (laughs) Moving on to you get your master's. Did you come to any kind of real realization while you're in school there, as far as what the next step is for you, and, and kind of what happened after that?
2: Well, it was a very challenging time frame to find a job as an athletic trainer. It, it you know, I was I, I looked aggressively. Actually, my my head trainer ended up being president of the NATA uh, just a few years ago. So, I mean, it, it's not like he didn't know a bunch of people, and I struggled. To find a job, I, I found this job uh, down in Chatham, Virginia, like I referred to, for $19.9 a year, and uh, I thought I'd hit the lottery. I mean, I, I I was just happy as hell to a have a job, and to be making almost twenty grand a year. That's ridiculous. Like that was just huge money, and so yeah, my my out of out of grad school, my my focus was on getting a job as an athletic trainer and kind of starting down that career path
0: so you get your job like you were saying you're making about 20 grand a year doing athletic training mm-hmm. it sounds like and um so what happens after that i mean how long do you stay on this job did you find something else you were interested in
2: I made it about two years uh and then where i had gone to grad school um, a position opened up to the center and i had kind of let it be known that i was i was basically burnt out i mean this this military academy is just a really different uh, setup. And we had a post, two postgraduate programs. So kids that would have been freshmen would come to this postgraduate program to have another bite at a scholarship. And we would sign 25 to 35 kids a year to D1 scholarships. I mean, we got some really good athletes uh, coming through this program. But you bring them on campus and there's nothing to do with them. So we did for f- the football team, we did three a days. We didn't do two a days. We did three a days. I was at the training room before 6 a.m. And I didn't get home until about 9 p.m. And that was for the entire time leading into the season. And then once school started, you know, I was still there early and home late. And so basically, I just burned out within a very short period of time and i can remember vividly uh in one of my freshman athletic training classes uh rick proctor who was my head trainer at high point just a tremendous guy he made the statement one on one of the first days you gotta love athletics and i got to the end of my time at hargrave and i'm like i don't love athletics (laughs) (laughs) not like this not like this so I moved on into running this hospital fitness center, and um, that was really that transition, that uh, kind of watershed moment that took me into the the, the fitness world and, and in a dedicated fashion.
0: Yeah, I know what you mean about burnout. I think we have all experienced burnout. So you're at the hospital. That's when you start your career in fitness, basically. Any? Are you in charge of this hospital? Do you want to maybe elaborate on what what you're doing initially there? Or you do, do you get into personal training there? Kind of what... What are your responsibilities
2: so i was running what we called our wellness program and so this was a community-based fitness program that uh like i said we did a lot of transition from rehab into post rehab we were also doing a lot of community outreach so we would do um wellness fairs where i would be doing body fat or some other you know kind of fitnessy uh, sort of calculation we, we would do those on a frequent basis and so, basically, I was just there. Um, essentially, these folks were receiving uh, personal training without having to sign up for it. So I would help uh, pretty much everybody that came through the door. And you could come through and just work out. You could be a, a wellness member, and you could just come in and do your workout. And I'd say hi, and we'd chat a little bit. And but if you wanted help with your program or technique or whatever it was. I would hop in and, and start taking care of that. So we didn't really, didn't have, I mean, it was me and one other person. I mean, we just had um, basically a staff of two. And so, you know, we, we did the best we could with, uh, with, with what we had and just worked with a bunch of different folks with a whole lot of different things going on. That included high school athletes. I mean, I, I worked with, I, I would work with some high school athletes and, you know, people that would come in. And, and it was just, man, a little bit of
0: everything. But at that point, are you on a salary still? And you're just, mm-hmm. you say saying you're paid to, and you're working with all different people. There's no, you're not doing personal training, I guess. Correct. Correct. And I am curious, what does your program design look like at this point? The programs that you're writing? I, I will just throw
2: myself under the bus and spin every kind of trainer. Okay. I've been the functional trainer. I've been the bodyweight trainer. I've been the hit Jedi And that's pretty much what i was doing at this point i was the one set to failure machine-based hit jedi uh and then i was at a very early on um pb perform better event with uh, juan carlos and and diane vivas uh and you know juan carlos santana's up there and he says muscles are dumb they only do what the neurological system tells them to do and i'm sitting there as a hit jedi and i'm like yeah (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> but and
2: it, you know, crap, he's right. And so this, this whole facade that makes up this, uh, you know, one set to failure sort of thing sort of falls away. And, um, then I become the functional training guy where everything's on, on one leg and sports specific and, and all the, all the, the very bad rabbit holes that we went down that, that time of, of, uh, the, the career path. And but then I started uh into podles uh information. Uh got uh, power to the people and started deadlifting and doing pressing. And you know, in the the kind of body weight phase, I was doing more like Navy SEAL style, style training, doing a bunch of pull-ups again and uh things of that nature. Um, but for the for the for the clients and people that were coming in, we had a significant senior population. Um, so the machines were very effective. Now I eased away and got a pardon me, got away from the one set to failure sort of mindset and had people doing more, you know, uh, traditional sort of sets and reps. But um, but yeah, it was that was a, an, an interesting time frame because I, I had time during the day of running this program to read, research, kind of try different things. Uh, and like I said, I just kind of, I, I fell down a bunch of different rabbit holes. And I think I finally tumbled out someplace where I'm somewhat happy.
0: Sounds like you went to the Perform Better seminar and that really was kind of a you know you had an epiphany there kind of a breakthrough whatever you want to call it and you were like oh well, you know crap you know this change is a, a paradigm shift huge um, and huge. then you started reading it sounds like you started really changing the information you were consuming.
2: Definitely no and you know getting into Pavel's information having Come out of the, that childhood kind of bodybuilding base, and then you know going, and then and again the uh, the hit Jedi kind of stuff was down that bodybuilding sort of rabbit hole once again, and then to kind of pick my head up and go, well, wait a second, there's this whole other thing called function that maybe we should be looking at, and then to have Pavel come in and say, you know, strength you know, we should be building strength and we should, you can do it in a very simple manner. You can do the same exercise every day. <gasps> what? That's crazy talk. And so, you know, there was just, yeah, it was just a, it was really neat timeframe.
0: And just for the listeners out there who don't know who Pavel is, he's talking about Pavel tasulin I believe is the correct enunciation. And he is the um, CEO of strong first. He started that company. He, I would say is the, the foremost authority on uh, kettlebell training and really probably strength training in general. So
2: agreed. Agreed. I have conversations with him that I've got to tell him to back up after the first five minutes. So it's, he, he can go deep.
0: All right. So you're at, you know, you got your new job. So what happens next? Uh, how long do you stay at, at the wellness center? And And yeah, what was the next steps?
2: I was there for five years. Uh, and then I started getting interested in kind of branching out. Um, you know, I had, I had gotten certified with Pavel. I had started teaching with him in 03 and kind of that was that moment again where I pick my head up and go, wait, there's more going on out here than running my, my little corner of the world in this little little wellness center. Uh, and so I transitioned into being part of the management team at a private club in Pittsburgh called the Duquesne Club Health and Fitness Center. Now, the, the Duquesne Club proper is an old school business city business club uh, established in 18, I think it's 1871 or 1881. Um, think Carnegie, Mellon, Rockefeller, like it's old school city business club, and they had established this, uh, fitness center. So I was there as part of the management team and also started doing some personal training, you know, while I was there on the, on the kind of off hours. And after a couple of years of doing that, um, opportunity came open. I was still teaching with Pavel and, and, you know, at that time, the RKC and opportunity came open to go be a part of the, one of the first kettlebell gyms that opened in the nation, which was iron core out in San Diego. And I did that in uh, late 04. I was getting divorced, had $800 and whatever I could fit in my Buick. And I drove across country to start a job at a a facility that was just open. It's hilarious. We held our grand opening. We thought we were gonna open the door and people were gonna flood in. And it was crickets. And, and a few friends and, uh, it was a slow start. So we, we learned a lot by throwing the doors open and having no, uh, base of. Clients or customers. And so I did that for two years and then moved back to Pittsburgh and actually worked at the same Duquesne club health and fitness center for another, uh, about seven years and then, um, somewhere around, I think it was around 2015. I, uh, I quit all of that because it turns out four jobs is one too many. And so that's, that's where I ended up. I was full-time at the Duquesne club health and fitness center, which included a weekend a month. I was trying to travel and teach. And at that time I'm knocking off 30 some odd uh, trips a year to teach certifications for both, uh, at the time, uh, RKC slash strong first and FMS and personal training so i i had four different things going on and i was frazzled i was once again at that that burnout phase and so i made a a switch to uh training uh at home i had been offering online training for a while at this point and then transitioned more into dedicated like online training traveling and teaching with strong first traveling and teaching with fms so yeah that's kind of the the way the next few years went
0: yeah, Brett, you covered a lot, man. And <laughs> I kind of want to just touch on some of these things really quickly. But it sounds like during your time at the hospital, you really got into the kettlebell training and Pavel, and you started going to some of the, his events, I guess. Right. Yes. And eventually uh, became uh, one of his instructors. April of 3 And then you. <laughs> You mentioned about going out and I guess, you know, kind of opening a studio and I've, I've owned a studio myself. I can attest fitness professionals, you know, it's kind of they're doing training and, you know, maybe they start their own independent business. And then um, at some point, you know, they think the next logical or easiest step is is to, you know, open up a studio. And, and then you realize, you know, now you're a business owner. Right. Um, and it's not people aren't just going to show up, you know. It's rough. It's, uh, it, it's a
2: totally different thing. And I, I've been fortunate in that, uh, you know, I've, I've been a part of the management and, and part of a, a few different facilities, but I've never been like, I've never been the one with my my checkbook on the on the on the line, uh, where I'm the business owner. And so I, I recognize the challenges and, and uh, struggles in doing that. But I've, I've been fortunate in that uh, I, I just haven't been, you know, uh, that
0: committed into one facility. Yeah. Well, I want to kind of come full circle and really come back, you know, down to the business here soon, because that's really what this uh, podcast is about, about the fitness business. Um, But I do want to touch briefly on. So you're working with Pablo. At what point did you meet Greg Cook and kind of get into the FMS? Because I want our listeners to kind of understand, you know, who he is and what FMS is. Sure. Uh, I I
2: met Gray in my training room in in, uh, Chatham, Virginia uh, in 95, worked with him in his clinics in my training room from 95 to 97. I lost touch with Gray, uh, did the first FMS workshop around 99. Then we lost touch. And around 2006, Gray gets in touch with me. He'd been, he had found out about Pavel and the kettlebell and naked warrior and I was one of the instructors and he's like, yeah, that can't be that uh, fanny pack wearing athletic trainer that was at the, the military academy. I had an epic fanny pack, by the way, for for athletic training. And so then uh, we got back in touch and uh, that was just kind of, again, another kind of uh, amazing Uh, friendship and collaboration that, that developed. And, um, you know, we, we shot the secrets of series and and like I said, developed into the level two materials.
0: And this, that is kind of what you're currently doing. You're working with strong first, you're working with Mm -hmm. FMS, um, anything that you want to say about, you know, your current position and kind of why you, I guess, chose to stay there. Right. And you finally settled on something because before that you were hopping all around. But, and I think with Strong
2: First and with Pavel, uh, I certainly recognized that there was a, a, a deep well of knowledge. There was a very effective knowledge uh, that was, was going to continue to progress. And I don't know if you saw a Free Solo and the guy that did the free climb of, of yeah, El Capitan. Yeah, yeah. And his mom says uh, one of the things he relates that his mom has told him as a kid is good enough isn't. And that's kind of Pavel in a nutshell. Like we were, I think we do a, a very good job. And good enough isn't. We're always looking to improve. We're always refining. That's something that that was uh that was attractive to me. And so I think that knowing that this was somebody that was going to uh be a leader and 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 take us places and it was a great place to be. And then with FMS, I mean, it's just, you know, Gray's Gray's uh one of the another rather smart guy that, uh, has some amazing perspectives and, and is driven to improve the industry. And, um, you know, again, I was just, very fortunate, very blessed to have met these met these individuals and, and to had have, have these mentors at these times in my life and to also put in the work and pursue uh being successful with them.
0: That's great. I think it's very important to have mentors. So you definitely have surrounded yourself with some great people. Um, Nick, you haven't said much over there. Do you what do you got for us? You want to get into this business stuff or what?
1: Oh yeah, I've got some great questions. So John down notes, really interesting story. It's great to kind of hear you tell it, Brett. But let's have a little fun now. So let's go, not rapid fire, just kind of off the cuff. Um, what are
2: what is one of the biggest challenges that you've had in your fitness career? it's it's balance. It's uh, one one of my problems is that I am all if you come to me with something, I'm probably gonna say, yeah, we can make that work. I might have 50 other things going on, and I should not say yes to this but I'm going to say yes anyway, because that's just part of my makeup. So my one of my biggest challenges is uh, I just always think there's a way to do more, to fit something else in. And there isn't <laughs> at times. And so that has led me into not probably not being as effective in certain situations as I could have been because I just and that's that's one of the problems, uh, both as a personal trainer, but also I transitioned into being more in on the education side of things, because I, I recognized there were some benefits to being on that side of the of the equation. But you know, the, the fear there is that if you say no, nobody's going to come asking again. So you end up saying yes to everything, and so you know, having a filter, uh, ha- keeping some sort of work life balance. Uh, I'm a stepdad and a husband, and I have missed way too much. I have not been here enough, and I have missed way too much. and that's because I was always saying yes, and I was always taking stuff on. So i, I mean I, that may sound like an odd challenge, but uh, that's that's probably the biggest challenge that that I've faced. That's
1: great. And I think that's something that a lot of fitness professionals deal with. You know, it, it is a double-edged sword in the sense that, if you say yes to everything, you get burned out and your quality can't always be there. But then if you say no, you might be turning down a potential great opportunity. One big key to having success in the fitness world.
2: Well, I, I'm, I hate to go two directions, but I'm going to go two directions. One is actually understanding business. I think that uh, most personal trainers, most fitness professionals, we we get into these situations because we love what we do. Um we we might be we we might be really awesome at working with people, but we don't really understand what's happening on the financial side of things. And so, you know, key to having a profitable business, actually understanding business. Number two, and, and this this will sound uh, maybe bad, but have a personality. Um I I tell people I got called in to, to talk to a group of graduating seniors from an exercise physiology program. Uh, who essentially and and the instructor who was a friend of mine pulled me aside and said, "Yeah, they th- they all think they're too good for this. You know, they're coming out with this college degree and they've got X, Y, and Z. They're all that in a bag of chips." And so, one of the first things I told them is, "You are going to get out earned ten to one by somebody with a ninety nine dollar certification and a personality, because if people don't enjoy being with you, they ain't paying you." As much as you think your programming and your results are going to bring people through the door, it's your personality that's going to hook people and your ability to, to really develop those relationships.
1: Great answer. Biggest trends in the fitness industry, where do you, where do you see it going in the next two to three years?
2: <sighs> Boy, um, I. Obviously, the wearables and the technology is something that's that's become more of uh, just something people are expecting, and, and people are working with data's data. At a certain point, what what are you going to do with it? Um, I, th- I think we've seen that a little bit in the in the soccer world, where football slash sorry football uh, world. Uh, if you're speaking internationally, and um, you know they collect a lot of information, and you know how much of it is actionable, usable. Uh, information obviously with the pandemic and things like that, online training is uh, there's a huge drive to that and and I thought it was very funny early on because I I'd been offering online training for a while. I would read you know pundits and people say uh, you know online training sucks you, you know it's just not as good as being in person blah 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 And within three months of the pandemic, they've got a product out to help you be an online trainer. And it's like, okay, well, somebody saw the writing on the wall. But but yeah, I I think I think, and then I guess a third thing, which is interesting to me, is um, this recovery industry that's kind of built up around the fitness industry of all of these different products and strategies for helping you recover uh, better from your workout. I, I think it's funny that very few people are looking at their programming. Instead, instead of, you know, <laughs> buying leg pumps or, you know, not that those are bad, but, uh, if, if I can't recover from my training, I'm not buying leg pumps. I'm looking at my nutrition, my lifestyle and my programming.
1: All right. So now we're going to put on a fake timer one minute. So this is going to be rapid fire. So your favorites, your favorites, food, oh, wings. Ooh,
2: uh, what flavor Hot, spicy. So I'm a dry rub guy, but I do like the spice.
1: Nice. Uh, favorite book?
2: Oh, man. Uh, this is going to come out of left field, but it's by a pair of authors called Preston and Child. And the book is called Cabinet of Curiosities. Now, and uh-huh. then another one which we could throw in there is um, Oh Devil in the White City. The author's name escapes me at the moment, but Devil in the White City is amazing. Cabin of Curiosities is amazing. You've, you've
1: definitely piqued my curiosity with the Cabin. Uh, favorite movie?
2: Oh, man. So if we go more comedic, uh, Office Space.
0: What if we and go dramatic?
2: God, I'm all over the place. <laughs> um, I, I will sit down and watch Shawshank Redemption at the drop of a hat. I don't care what part of the movie is on. I'll sit down and watch it.
1: To the best. Uh, yep. And then finally, just something unique about you. What's something that people don't know? I don't know. I've
2: I've put a lot of, inf- <laughs> put a lot of information <laughs> about myself out there. Um, I don't know. I'm just kind of a simple guy. Um, I like um, you know a little bit of sci-fi, a little bit of uh, I'm definitely a comic book kid that has been the best you know twelve years ever uh, as the Marvel Universe has gotten cranked up, and so. I don't know. A cancer survivor. Let's, let's go there. Something unique about me. I'm a cancer survivor. Um, and, uh, I, I've, I've got my scars and got my, uh, got my mileage learned a little bit along
0: the way.
1: Yeah, it's been great. And congrats on, on taking that.
2: Thank you.
0: Thank hey, you. Brett, I know we got a few minutes left, so I do kind of want to circle back to a little bit more of this business stuff, and then we can just go ahead and wrap up. But I know you said that, um, one of the biggest things was having personality, right? Mm-hmm. Is there any way maybe you could elaborate on some of the person different personality types that you see that maybe are, are not very effective and then kind of the personality traits that would be the most beneficial?
2: Sure. And you know, for everything I say that I think is not a positive personality trait, there are people out there looking for that. And so coaches can can fall into one of two categories pretty easily. The perfectionist, where something's never good enough, and then the cheerleader, where everything's awesome. I think both of those directions have massive pitfalls within them, yet there are people out there looking for those two things. There are people out there looking to be told it's never good enough, because it's like the Alex Honnold, right? Good enough isn't. They are they're always chasing more perfection, or they they've always been told they're not good enough. So anybody that says they are good enough is like, whoa, wait a second. That's that's that is not what I'm used to hearing. And so they'll seek out the coach that is always criticizing them. And I say criticizing because it can turn into that, but you know, where the technique's never good enough. You're you're always refining, uh, there's very rarely a positive uh word that's said, and you're always being criticized. I did the air quotes for those people not watching the video. And then on the cheerleader end of things, everything's awesome. You know, how was that? That was great. You did great. This is awesome. Wow, that was amazing. Well, nobody always or nevers, right? So the, the person that you're saying everything's awesome, it's not. It just can't be. The person that's saying everything's wrong, it's not. It just can't be. So there's a midpoint where you can hold people to a higher standard and guide them towards really high levels of proficiency, execution and technique. And you can be encouraging without being false, without being the, the just the, the blanket
0: cheerleader. You got to have a good balance, like you're saying, of uh, positive reinforcement and then also um, not being afraid to, I guess, critique people and, and try to make them better. Compliment sandwich, man. Compliment sandwich.
2: Hey, that set was really good. You know, on this next set, let's just work on a little better extension. I want you to be a little taller at the top of your swing. But man, you your breathing was really dialed in on that on that set. And so you know, we we get this kind of compliment sandwich going where uh, we 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 highlight some positives, but we also highlight something I want you to do better. And and notice that the cueing there was I just want you to finish taller. It wasn't activate a muscle. Or, you know, I want you to tighten this and whatever that it it was something external, something that uh, visual, something that somebody can grab hold of.
0: You can give way too many. Uh, you can critique too much to where, you know, it's like there's 50 things. Right. To focus on. And we know that most people, you know, right. They just need one thing, maybe two, you know. Right. Uh, but that's funny. All right. Kind of wrapping up with this. What do you have any other, I guess, big mistakes that you see, uh, fitness professionals making common mistakes? Um,
2: I, I think the drive to market ourselves via social media has created a lot of issues. I think that there's this, this continued drive to be showing something unique, to show something flashy, to be either, uh, shirtless or scantily clad and, now, Alan Cosgrove had a great post today on why weren't gyms considered essential during the pandemic? We know that fitness helps in so many areas, that it should be essential in so many ways, and we are not considered essential. Why are we not considered essential? Because you look up fitness and you get shirtless guys and scantily clad females doing weird stuff and trying to promote themselves. and as an industry, we can do better. We, we should have been considered essential during the pandemic and we were not. And we were not because you peel back the veneer and there's a bunch of people that don't have the educational background running around trying to market themselves on social media. And I, I, I know that sounds like really harsh and, I, and I'm not, I'm actually a nice guy. <laughs> but it's the roadhouse rule, right? Be nice until it's time to not be nice. And I think that for our industry, we, we need to reach a point where it's time to not be nice and to tell people that are a little more just effective marketers, which you have to market yourself. It's, and I'm an, I'm an example of somebody that isn't effective at marketing themselves. And so, you know, you could say it's jealousy. You could say that I'm just uh, I'm just jealous of these folks that have a million Instagram followers or whatever the case may be. But why weren't we considered essential during the pandemic?
0: And I agree with you, you know, um, like you were saying earlier, the bar is kind of low as far as who can be a trainer. And, you know, at some point, like you're saying, social media really becomes about who is creating the most engaging content and whether or not the content, you know, you see people doing all kind of crazy exercises, um, you know, just to, to get uh, attention. But, you know, it is what it is. We'll see. Hopefully the industry will evolve and maybe move the bar up a little higher, you know.
2: I hope so. I, I think because we should be considered essential. We are a key frontline uh, offense to most of the lifestyle issues and, and things that are affecting our society these days, the idea of being strong, being fit and fit, meaning that you can take on your life and the emergencies that, that come about you. Had I not gone into cancer treatment at a, at a high level of, of fitness, I would have, and I had a, I had a rough time in of treatment. Um, but I, I would have had a much worse time had I not entered in at, at a good level of treatment. I know Alan Koshgrove has talked about this as well, that when he was starting his second cancer treatment, there were people coming in who could not receive the treatment because they weren't physically fit enough to survive it. Cancer treatment, cancer is not easy. And so you, you need to have some reserves. You need to have some ability and that you could say the same thing about somebody that ends up having a problem with their heart ends up having a problem with whatever, like you need to have some reserves in, in, uh, in the bank to draw from. And again, why, why weren't we considered essential?
0: (laughs) That's a great question. So all you listeners out there, I hope that, uh, you're paying attention and Brett just kind of wrapping up here, you know, what is the the best way for our listeners to, you know, kind of keep up with you and even contact you if they want to.
2: Absolutely. So I'm, I'm probably most, I am most active on the Instas where I, I think it's Brett Jones, SFG. It's either B Jones, SFG or Brett Jones. I don't even know my Instagram handle. <laughs> That's probably part of the problem. But uh, I think it's Brett Jones, SFG on on Instagram. Uh, definitely strongfirst.com. Got a bunch of articles up there. I have articles on movement.com. And so, and I have my own website, appliedstrength.com. You know, I've, I have been fortunate to be on a number of, of podcasts. Uh, for some reason, people like to hear me talk. Some at least. And, uh, so I've got a big list of podcasts on there that, uh, that, that you can dive into if, if you feel like it and, uh, yeah, those are the best, uh, best avenues.
0: Awesome. Well, it's definitely your personality, like you were saying, bro. <laughs> one they want to listen to you, but, um, for everybody out there, thank y'all for listening and, you know, be sure to subscribe to our podcast and look out for the next episode.